Welcome to the Ivy Arts and Culture Podcast, conversations with some of the most interesting and influential leaders in the visual and performing arts. Discover a new art form, unlock your creativity, or dive deeper into an existing passion. I'm Ivy's Arts and Culture Director and your host, Phil Chan. For more information about Ivy and our arts and culture programming, visit culture.ivy.com. Jazz musician Ted Nash first picked up a clarinet at age 12 and decided in that moment that music would be his passion and profession. Fast forward to today, and Ted is a Grammy winner and one of the most well-known saxophonists and composers in the jazz world. He's a member of the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra and has worked with everyone from Lionel Hampton, Quincy Jones, and of course, Wynton Marsalis. He's released 12 personal albums as well, including Presidential Suite, Eight Variations of Freedom, which also won him a Grammy in 2017. I had the opportunity to sit down with Ted at a recent Ivy event to learn exactly how growing up in a house consumed with jazz influenced him to find his own way in the music industry. You know, I grew up in a household that uh, of two jazz musicians. Uh, my father, Dick Nash, who grew up in the sort of the late swing era time and then settled into the studios. And my uncle, Ted Nash, also a swing era musician with Les Brown and settled into the studios as well. And they were both extremely successful studio musicians. My mother was a jazz singer and maybe the most talented out of all of us. She uh, she passed away about eight years ago and she gave up her career to raise a family. And uh, my father had an amazing career. So I was exposed to jazz music, you know, all through my childhood, but also... You know, we had um, my brother who was into rock music and my sister was into pop and different stuff. So I really felt like there was a turning point where I really owned jazz music for myself. I, I don't think early on I really had any kind of identity for music and that I just let my family sort of rule the airwaves of the house. And it wasn't until I was about 14 and I won a radio in a contest. And I remember bringing it home and setting it up. And it was the first time I said, okay, now I can listen to music for me. And I remember flipping through the channels and, you know, be like, and now today I was just going through. And, and finally it was like, it was real cool. And I, I remember that I could just remember the feeling of the music. It was swinging. I think there was a trumpet. I was like, I like this. And I left that station on. And so that was sort of the time where I felt like I identified with jazz for the first time in a personal way. And when did you decide to become a musician and actually be a practitioner of jazz? Well, I took the obligatory piano lessons throughout, you know, my single and double digit years, eight to maybe about 13. Didn't really have a lot of passion for it. It was a great training, but I, I discovered the clarinet when I was 12. A little kid brought it out of his case at a summer camp. And I was like, well, this is cool because you can't bring a piano anywhere. But you can bring a clarinet somewhere and you can pull it out and make music. So I told my dad about it and he ran right down to the store and rented one for me. So I, I took that very seriously for about two or three years, thinking that I would be probably a classical clarinet player. But was around this time at 14 when I discovered Charlie Parker and uh, Sonny Rollins, Coltrane, Miles Davis, etc. And then I began to study with a great teacher named Charlie Shoemake. And uh, 
It was some point in the middle of those studies that I, I really understood, no, what I'm going to do is be a jazz musician. And I never second guessed it. I think it's a blessing when you know what you want and you don't think about it twice. This is what happens to a lot of young students. I see that they're not sure they want to do this <laughs> and their parents are not sure they want their kids to do this. So they, they think, well, what can I really do? You know, I don't know if music is serious, but I never had that. I always was like, yeah, I can do this and I'm going to do it. And I think that's just having that attitude is a real blessing and it's, and it's rare that people do. So I'm very lucky. Yeah. Um, and also, <clears throat> first of all, congratulations on all of your accolades for presidential suite. Um, I actually had a good listen to it myself. Um, I, uh, J JFK was still my favorite. Um, mm. I, I really liked it. Um, I liked that you could hear for me, you could hear the cadence and the breathing and the, um, the wave hmm. of it the most mm -hmm. uh, it translated the best for me okay so that, that's what I mean just I liked it the best but um, how did you how did you choose the the speeches that you chose to be selected into this composition well when I first set out to compose presidential suite I wasn't quite sure what the theme of the speeches was going to be so in other words I was just drawn to political rhetoric, the speeches, the sound of the voice. I was, my idea was from the beginning to transcribe the speeches for their actual intonation. When I did set out to, to choose the, the political speeches, I was at first more intrigued with the cadence and the, and the sound of the speeches. And because I knew that my, my concept was I was going to transcribe, trans, transcribe these, these speeches for their actual pitches and create thematic material out of it. But as I started to look, listen to uh, speeches, um, and there were dozens and dozens that I listened to, and I researched the importance of them, and I realized I kept coming to one, to one theme that 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 moved me the most, and that was the the theme of of freedom and human rights and civil rights. And so then I focused all of my listening uh, to speeches that dealt with that theme, and then I made my choices from that. Um, and why, I mean, I'm just curious, why did you not choose any speeches that were maybe a little darker or more sinister or, you know, to kind of butt up against it? What would that have sounded like if you had taken a, a Hitler speech or, or some other dictator? Um, what do you think that would have sounded like for you? I'm just curious. Well, I think that's an interesting concept, yeah. taking, taking Hitler's uh, speeches, which were very colorful. And, you know, in German, especially, you don't know, I don't, because I don't speak German, I don't know what, what he's saying. I mean, I understand the overall concept of what he was dealing with, but uh, I wouldn't want to even give him credit or respect enough to, to choose him. Um, my parents were civil rights activists, and so I grew up in a household of, uh, of an awareness of people from all walks of life, and we used to have meetings and parties and gatherings. My parents worked with a group called Operation Bootstrap which was really taking inner city people and educating them and finding jobs and training them and all that. They worked a lot with them. So I think just that experience growing up has made me particularly sensitive to issues, social issues and, and things dealing with human rights and civil rights. So choosing more sinister speeches, I think would have felt bad to me. It would have gone away from what I wanted to do. And that was to have people listen to these speeches, not just the little excerpts that I took and the music that I created to represent them, but to go back and listen to the original speeches and get that inspiration that I got and say, wow, 
you know, we've, we've come a long way, but there's still so much that we need to do. And I, that's one of the main goals I have in trying to get this music to people. And, uh, that's, um, I, that's what I, what I'm hoping is, is people's reaction. You know? And what was that process like of taking these <clears throat> texts and abstracting them into music? How did that translation process work for you? That took a while. I, I remember I was on tour and I, I had my laptop with the videos of these different, uh, speeches. And of course, everything I chose had to have been recorded. So, uh, that's why it was limited to a certain time era. Uh, but, um, I went through and I just, I just took the pitches, da, 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 da. like, you know, uh, FDR, da, da, da. He always had these long do-do-da at the end of his phrases. So there was all these intervallic jumps on that that I had to deal with. With Nehru, it was everything was right in here with a very, very narrow sort of place. And, and JFK was very colorful. Churchill was very colorful. Um, and then once I took all that thematic material, now I don't have chords. I don't have uh, bar lines or anything other than just a bunch of random pitches. So that was the challenge. Now I've spent days and days and days transcribing, and then I had to create an environment in which to put all of these notes. So I had to shape them into phrases. Uh, sometimes I used the phrases and the cadences of the speeches. Sometimes I created my own. Uh, then like you mentioned JFK, I, it was, it took place in a, a certain time, right? In the early sixties. And, uh, I thought of JFK and I, I associate him with a certain macho quality. And so I wanted it to be a, like a hard swing and shuffle blues that, and that kind of marched through. And I think of the procession. So I try to let a lot of aspects of the era of the speech, the, the speaker themselves, his background or her background, and then, and then let that affect the choices that I made to create an environment in which to put all this thematic material. And that was a challenge. That's probably the biggest challenge. Well, you know, I took uh, Nehru's inauguration. Basically, it was 1947. It was when India got its freedom, independence from Great Britain. And uh, so it was an important moment. And now this took place at midnight because it was the time that the clock went over at midnight. That's the, the time they suddenly got their freedom. So he made a speech at midnight. So that's right there. There's, it creates a certain vibe that I really liked. And there's an intensity about it, waiting for that clock to to ding and then and then knowing that this country is now free and there's an intensity and a passion in the way that he spoke that I wanted to capture in this music it's very directed it's very very intense and it didn't give me a lot of opportunities in terms of melodic uh, sort of flexibility and, and, and melodic uh, sort of variety because it was so close. The, the pitches were so close. So the challenge was to take that and create a chordal background for that. Now, what I wanted to do is I was thinking about uh, Indian music because Nehru was, of course, the, the, the prime minister of India. And the music of India deals a lot with odd time signatures. So I started with a, a bass line, kind of an ostinato bass line that was in seven. And, and then I, I created a vibe using uh, woodwinds and pianos to sort of give this exotic quality because it really felt like an exotic 
speech to me, an exotic part of the world. So uh, building on top of that, I took this thematic material and I tried to fit it into four bar segments. So if you hear the harmony, there's the melody and this ostinato bass line going on. Every four bars, it shifts and goes to another tonality. So that I had to kind of manipulate the, the thematic material to fit over those different bar segments. I didn't change any notes. That was one of the rules. I'm not gonna change notes on these things because I really wanna make that make that to be authentic. So anyway, uh, that was the basis for it. Um, and I chose sopranos and Harmon mute trumpets to give it, again, additional exotic quality. If you listen to the recording of the sopranos and the, and the muted trumpets, it has kind of a nasal quality, which he also had in his speech. I mean, you could listen to the speech back and forth with this recording and you can hear how similar it is. Uh, and then there's an open uh, improvisation section, which it, it, the whole rhythm section kind of opens up and uh, there's a soprano solo, which I played. It was the only solo I played on the record. Um, and so that was kind of the freedom. It opens up and becomes freer, and there's a lot of expression and freedom in that. So we come out of the tightness of the, of the orchestration and the tightness of this melodic passages, and uh, these melodic passages, and then we open up, and it just uh, becomes uh, more indicative of, of freedom. And, and then there's a secondary statement uh, development of the, the, the melody. We come back later and now we've taken that original melody and we've expanded it and I orchestrated it and I, I harmonized it so it's a much bigger statement. So it's the same original statement but now it's a much bigger version of it. So that's essentially what I was doing with, with Nehru. Um, Great. Yeah. Um, and how did, what was that <clears throat> process like of getting these big name people to record these speeches? Did you, did you create, did you get the speeches first? Did you work off the original speeches? Um, and was there, what, what was your relationship in working with these people in the, the cadence and the recording of? The guest, the guest readers? Yeah. Well, there were so many aspects to not only recording the speeches and choosing excerpts from these speeches to organizing that and having people read that for the recording. The first thing was just getting the rights to the speeches. Well, what I found out, which which was a real benefit, is that anything that's anything that was spoken or written by a politician in office is public domain. So that gave me seven out of the eight complete freedom to do what I wanted with the speeches. The one that I didn't have the freedom was Aung San Suu Kyi's Freedom from Fear, which was not a, she didn't speak that or write that during office, during her time in office. It was an essay that she wrote and published, and it's on Penguin Books. So I had to deal with them directly to get, they actually did not allow me to do it at first. They said, no, you can't break up this, the essay and make a, an excerpt out of it. So I was kind of in trouble because Glenn Close had already been in the studio and recorded it. So I said to them, I said, look, wouldn't Aung San Suu Kyi be happy to have Glenn Close reading her words on a recording? And I sent them that recording and they came back to me and they said, you know what, send us $50 and you can do what you want. 
<laughs> so I was actually really lucky with the rights issues. Getting the people into the studio was tough because we have um, these amazing people with these amazing schedules, all busy politicians, actors, uh, writers, producers, people like that who are all over the world. So that took, that's one of the reasons why this record took so long is to get everybody in the studio and do that. Uh, Glenn Close is a friend. I actually met her first through a Jazz Lincoln Center uh, project probably 10 years ago. We did something called uh, uh, Let Freedom Swing. It was a really nice concert dealing similarly with the idea of, of freedom. And uh, she was one of the speakers. So we've been in touch. Just uh, I've been to her house. You know, she's come to gigs and stuff. And she's really, really cool. And the reason why I know Sam Waterston is through Glenn. Now, when uh, when the presidential suite premiered here at Jazz Lincoln Center in 2014, um, Wendell Wendell Pierce was scheduled to be the reader. He was going to read all the excerpts, one actor, and he got really sick and canceled at the last minute. So I talked to Glenn, and she said, "Call Sam, see if Sam would come and do it." And Sam was like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, but I'm tied up on Friday. I could I could do Saturday, but I can't do Friday." I said, no, it's good. we're going to need to have somebody to do both both nights, which we did. We got Charles Dutton, the actor, to do it. But Sam, I said, well, if you want to come to the Saturday concert, come. So he brought his wife and his kid, and he came backstage. And so we started a friendship. And he he uh, did the uh, he read the uh, LBJ speech, and just it was so beautiful. Most of the other guests that were part of this project came through Kabir, my producer. Kabir is someone who's very involved with... Um, different aspects of financial and political fields. And uh, Douglas Brinkley is somebody that he's worked with. And Doug, Doug Brinkley ended up, um, you know him, he's a CNN correspondent. He's written 20 or so books. He wrote the Reagan Diaries, the authorized book on Reagan. So he came and read the Reagan uh, speech, which was fantastic. But he also wrote the liner notes with Kabir, which are remarkable. So it, it, it just amazing when people want to be part of something, it makes you feel like, yeah, what you're doing is timely. It's important. And having them come in and put their soul into these short minute and a half little, little excerpts made me feel stronger about this project than had it just been the music. So I'm really, really grateful and blessed to have had them come in. And what was your experience, um, comparing it to Portrait in Seven Shades with you know, a similar concept with abstracting a, a visual artist um, and their work in, in musical form. Um, did you draw on anything you learned from that process in doing this? Uh, similarities, differences? What I learned from Portrait in Seven Shades was that a project, any creative endeavor is stronger when you have a a theme, when you have a concept and a theme that you're dealing with, because it really gives you a through line through the pieces. And I think it helps to engage an audience because they know, in the case of Portrait in Seven Shades, I chose, I chose iconic paintings. So they know these paintings, so they may have a feeling already about them and what they might represent and how they might be expressed musically. So it's a risk at one point, but also it gave them an opportunity to experience these paintings in a fresh way. I didn't obviously transcribe the paintings, but I let them affect me in, in a big way. And it was one of the first times that I was able to actually write music based on something that was really truly a feeling and a reaction to something. Whereas before, I think my, 
composing was based more on intellectual ideas and harmony and sounds and and just but not based on something that really moved me so i learned from that that a project especially of this sort of nature like a, a long an hour long piece of music needs to have some kind of theme that that helps you to organize it helps you to be inspired and hopefully inspire other people um, I did that with my Chakra record, which came out in between Portrait and Seven Shades and Presidential Suite. Uh, it was based on the seven chakras, another theme. Uh, Presidential Suite had its own challenges that I didn't experience with Portrait and Seven Shades. And that was, that was really because I didn't, I couldn't just create the melodies from scratch and fit them into, into a harmonic uh, context because that's what you know. That's what I've done most of my life. Here, I'm, I'm, I, I'm given all this material basically. Now, let's see what you can do with it. Like Churchill, I mean, there was no way to create a form out of that. There was just no way to have a repeating form. It was completely through composed, and that took me the longest to just create the harmony that supported that melody. So um, for me, it had unbelievable challenges that I don't think people could understand or. Most people probably don't even know about them when they listen to this music. So that creates another challenge is that it can't just be, oh, this is cute and because it's technical and it has this weird concept about transcribing the speeches. People have to listen to this music and enjoy it for what it is. It has to stand on its own. So again, that was another challenge, making this music cohesive in itself. Because a lot of people don't know that they came from speeches. They think it might be inspired by speeches, which is cool. So uh, I, I've learned so much from all of these projects that uh, I, I don't know where I'm going to go from here, but it's going to have to be somewhere up. <laughs> What's your um, creative process like? Do you, do you make mistakes? Do you throw things out? Um, what do you, you know, do you do only compose first thing in the mornings? I mean, what is your, what is your environment and process like when you're creating work? There are sort of two schools of thought when it comes to creativity and writing and one is sort of the John Adams, who's the classical composer, who I've had the pleasure of working with. I'm on his uh, Nixon in China um, opera recording. Uh, who's a nine-to-five composer? So he gets up, has his coffee and breakfast, goes to work, probably takes a lunch break at five o'clock. He's done. Because he understands that you can find creativity within a, a, a time frame like that. And there are other people, it's like, well, I'm not going to do anything until I, until I get the inspiration, man, until I'm, I'm hearing something. And, you know, well... I think I'm sort of in between that. I definitely am not a nine to five composer. I don't have the time to sit around in my apartment for, for eight hours and compose. So everything is always done in between tours and between rehearsals. Sometimes it's night, sometimes it's day, sometimes it's on a bus, sometimes it's on a subway. So uh, I don't have that kind of luxury to sit around and compose all day. I wish I did in some cases, but I also enjoy performing and touring. So, um, and sometimes it's, it's about inspiration. Sometimes it's, you work and it's like, wow, I'm just, I'm overworking this and it's not working. And I just have to set it aside. And all of a sudden, ooh, this is a whole other idea for something else. And it just comes to you and you just go with it. And it just, it's almost like it has a life uh, in itself. And you, it's, it's like you're just trying to capture this thing that already exists. I think of composing like being a sculptor. And there's two ways of sculpting. There's one where you add material until you get to where you want. 
And there's the other where you take a big block of onyx and you chip away at it until you expose the thing you want. And I feel music is like that. I feel it already exists. So you just have to basically take everything else away. And then you're left with something. I mean, it's already there. Every note, every possibility of, of combination of notes and chords already exists. So you have to find them. And the main thing about composing or writing or doing anything creative is making a choice. Because you can work to death and you could take a month on one little phrase because you're not sure. Or you can say, no, make a choice and move on. And that's what I've learned in the last few years. If I'm writing something with a deadline, you have to make the first choice that comes to you because that's probably the best one anyway. Make it and move on. And then you'll, you'll actually get somewhere. Great. And one of my favorite Balanchine quotes from the dancer, he said, um, it's, not, it's not perfect when there's nothing more you can add, but when there's nothing more you can take away. Right. Um, and I just, I just really love that, that approach and that philosophy. Um, what, what to you, what is creativity? What defines creativity and how can a normal person on the street be a more creative person? What, what has to happen in their brain and their attitude to be more creative? I think a lot of people have the misconception that there are people who are creative and there are people who are not creative. I mean, we're creative. Everybody's creative. We have been created. We we're constantly creating, but sometimes people don't understand that because they think creativity is really limited to some kind of art form or something. Um, creativity is a form of, of expression. The more you know who you are and trust that you know who you are, the more honest your creativity is. So I think for most people, they think that creativity is coming up with something that's outside of themselves. And that's the mistake. Um, because creativity is really finding something inside yourself and then being able to present that in some form. I mean, there's all sorts of different disciplines, but creativity could be in how you, how you talk to somebody. It could be in how you love somebody. It could be how you walk down the street. So creativity can be expressed in so many different ways. So I think people under the impression that they're, they're, they are either creative or they're not, but everybody's creative. Um, creativity is, I have to say this, it's the key to my life. Creativity, being creative, is the most important thing to me. Not money, not success, not Grammy Awards. Being creative. If I can get a Grammy Award and it allows me the opportunity to be more creative, I'm very, very happy. I, that's, I can't say that strongly enough, that just being creative is the most important thing. I think for, I think for everybody, they just don't realize it. Great. We'd love to switch gears a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about politics, since this is a, uh, a, a work that is maybe not political, but has political content. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think the relationship is between art and politics? Um, just in history, and are you seeing any change in the current climate? You know, I don't, I don't see a strong connection between politics and art, the arts. I mean, there are, there are things politically that affect the arts, obviously, funding, the NEA, things like that, that can be changed because of a political climate. I do know that as we, we flow and we, 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 we 
ebb and flow in terms of our administrations locally, as a president, whatever, in terms of how we support arts and schools. And it's like to, to take away a music program, an arts program in a school, because, well, how important it is. People don't look at it as a priority. They look at it as a luxury. The arts, and I think music in, in particular, is not a luxury because people, kids who study music or art, in school do better in their other subjects. So if, if people understood that, we would be advancing and, and growing the arts in schools because it makes kids smarter, it makes kids do better in school. So I think obviously that's something that would have to be dealt with on a political level. Um, and I, despite the fact that I grew up in a, an environment of political awareness with my parents, I have never been particularly political in terms of being an activist or being active in pursuing and supporting my political ideals until now. I feel like I'm a lot more than I ever have been. What were you able to say with the music that the speeches themselves did not say? I, I chose these speeches because they, they were important historically. And they inspired a lot of people. I mean, the JFK first inauguration inspired Joe Lieberman to choose public service as a career because he heard that as a teenager. Um, those things are important to me. I love the idea that these speeches can inspire somebody. And if you look at great political rhetoric, I mean, Reagan was a good speaker. Churchill was amazing because he was so gruff and from his heart, and it was very personal. JFK, I mean, a lot of these people had writers, but the LBJ speech given in 1965, We Shall Overcome, which I used, is so heavy, every time I hear it, I cry. Martin Luther King cried when he heard this live on the radio. I, I'm not hearing anything like that right now, and I haven't for a while. I mean, the, the idea of someone getting up there and representing... Um, ideals and inspiring a group of people to come together and work towards something and make this place a better, make this world a better place. I don't feel like we're dealing with that right now. And I think that's a shame. Um, it's, it's hard for me to talk about that because uh, you just, people are so in their own world and, there are a lot of people out there who are more consumed by their own careers and they're, they're pushed towards success and acquiring money and more things and all that. And, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of room for people to be sensitive to other people. And there's a lot of room in this world for people to, to really think about other people and, and do what they can, spend a little bit of time to help other people. Um, I, I would hope that in some way that presidential suite would inspire people to, to look at life a little bit more like that. I don't know if it will. It only can reach a certain amount of people. Is there anything you'd like our, our folks to know about? Um, maybe, maybe tell them a little bit about how they should 
approach jazz in general. Okay. Like, if I, I like if that. I, I saw that in your question. You know, yeah. if, I've, if I've never been to jazz, I've never been exposed to it, mm -hmm. What? <clears throat> how do I come and have an authentic experience and let myself have an authentic experience? There have been so many times that I've talked to people who don't know jazz music, don't listen to it, haven't really listened to it. And I'll say, have you, have you checked out jazz? And they're like, well, yeah, but you know, it's like, you got this guy and then he goes, blah, 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 blah. I don't know what he's doing. And it seems like he's just into his own thing and he's not connecting with the audience. And, and then he plays a bunch of notes and then he plays, I, I don't know, you know. And I'm like, well, that's true. And that is actually one of the responsibilities that we have jazz, as jazz musicians is to, to maintain and, and develop an audience through engagement, we have to be engaging. We can't just be playing a bunch of intellectual stuff that people can't relate to. I mean, that's sometimes that's a part of what we do, but there is a huge responsibility and a part of the jazz musician to create an audience for this music. And we do that by being engaging. And we are engaging when we're doing something that we feel and we mean, and then uh, we allow the other musicians around us to respond to that. And then there's an energy that's creative that people in the audience respond to, and then they're drawn into it. But so many people who play, play in a way that push people away. So um, what I would suggest to people who don't know jazz all that well is, first of all, go and hear live music. Go and hear a jazz concert. Go hear something in a club. Get some recommendations. I guarantee you, if it's one of your first experience hearing jazz live, you'll respond to the energy of it. You'll respond to the feeling of all these instruments coming together live. Uh, you may, it may not end up being your favorite music, but you will have a different understanding, a different experience of jazz music. Um, I mean, I've just been so fortunate to be working with Jazz at Lincoln Center for the last 18 or 19 years. We put on concerts here in New York many, many times a, a year. We tour, we bring the music all over the world. We're gonna, about ready to go to Poland. We're gonna go to uh, Czech Republic. We're gonna be in China, bringing music to people. And there was a sense that I had of Jazz at Lincoln Center in the beginning that it was more of a repertory organization, that its focus was to play more historic music to keep the history of jazz alive. And that's part of what the mission is. But we're also creating new music all the time. And this is really, really important. So there's so many great programs here in the club, in the Appel Room, in, in Rose Theater that uh, I would recommend just just about anything would be a wonderful experience for somebody, especially somebody who's who's seeing jazz, hearing it for the first time. Uh, would you, can you give us some advice on uh, on how to be a better listener, just in our everyday lives? How can we be? Because I mean, a large part of your work is is listening and collaborating. So how can we learn from you about how to be better listeners and better collaborators? I think one of the things is as with any art form or discipline that we want to learn more about, we, we should do a little bit of work to listen to the history of it and understand or read a little bit about it. Maybe read a, a biography by a, a great jazz musician or an autobiography. Um, I think that if you understand that jazz, one of the things that makes jazz unique, not, not, not that this is the only music that has this, but it's one of the things that makes it special is improvisation. So if you understand the difference between playing, um, say, a melody or something that's written out 
and then the interpretation, which is improvised, and where that difference is, and being able to identify that and understand that the musicians are improvising. Not only the soloist, who's sort of out front in the spotlight at that moment, but the entire rhythm section, the piano, bass, drums, guitar, whoever's uh, accompanying, they're also improvising. It's one of the only musics that have uh, accompaniment that's improvised. If you go back in classical music, there was always an improvisational aspect to it. The, these concertos would have like an improvisational sort of cadenza at the end. But the orchestra was always, everything they played was written out. Jazz, at certain moments, is completely improvised. There's a freedom about that. And that's why the music can be good or bad. Because, you know, you, you, people are interpreting this. And um, some musicians may not understand the harmony well enough. May not understand how to communicate his or her ideas to the band and to you who are the listener. So it's good to just sort of get a little bit of um, education on your own about jazz and what is it and maybe read some things and then check out Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Check out some of the historic recordings that you always hear people recommending and see, see what it is. Read a little something about it. Then go and hear something live and see if you can recognize the different aspects of what, what makes jazz a unique art form. And if you like it, then... Check out some more. <laughs> what about just general tips on collaboration for the, the world in general? You know, a lot of our, our folks are, they work in offices on teams. How can they be better team players and how can they learn from your lifetime of listening and being sensitive to a group? What are some things from that process that they could maybe learn so that they could be better managers or be mm. better teammates on a, you know, a tech team or something like that? That's a good question. Yeah. One thing that we always learn and take away from from jazz music is is how strong a community it is. On the bandstand, people have to work together. You can't be can't be about you. It can't be this is all about me, right? And it's the same in in any kind of corporate setting. I mean, there are bosses and stuff like that, but there but you are working with other people, and you all have a goal. The, the people who are maybe working above you are helping to organize all the people around you so that you all go towards a common goal. And I think jazz teaches us that we can we can play without listening to each other and then it just becomes a cacophony or we can all come together as a community and work towards one goal of having this music be something that we all agree is is an expression of, of who we are as individuals and as, an, as a group. Uh, I think that is what um, people do in the in the office. It's not just about you. It's it's about how you work with everybody else. Um, I think the most successful um, companies have people who can work with each other, inspire each other, and have people who work above them who can inspire them to make the the company work better and um, and share the goals of whatever the you know whatever the objective of the company is that everybody feels that they share that. Otherwise. You're going to have people not working for the for the um, the goal of the company, and I think that's that's what happens with jazz. I mean, you have to get people on the bandstand who agree with your idea of what this music is supposed to be. If they don't, they should go and play with somebody else, or you should hire somebody else. So there's a lot of parallels um, in those two worlds. My my one last question is: What are you up to next? What are you composing next? Uh, what's where are you performing? Where can we see you perform or mm. catch your next composition? Mm. Well, we have um, a jazz center. We have a number of 
concerts that are in the in the schedule already. So you can go to the jazz the jazz dot org website and, and check that out. I'm working on a lot of projects on my own. I've uh, I, I recorded music live at Dizzy's about two months ago, and it's. I think I'm going to put that out as my next record, just because I want to give people an opportunity to hear me as a player, not so much as a as a composer or like such a broad thinker, but someone who just plays saxophone and likes to swing and likes to play grooves and and deal with something uh, on that basis. Because I think so many of my projects are sort of bigger and. Uh, I like playing too, so <laughs> I want people to see that and be reminded of that. Um, I've uh, written some short plays that have been produced and performed in the city. I wrote a screenplay that I'm shopping around. And the screenplay is based on the civil rights movement of the late 60s, and in particular my parents' involvement with a black family that they became, we became really good, very close friends with. And this, this um, sort of uh, the patriarch of this family was also, um, a, he was a cousin of Malcolm X, and he was a very hardcore kind of nation of Islam Muslim who always referred to the white man as devil. And my parents were just very open, and he began to trust us, and the family began to trust us. And so we ended up going on a on a vacation together, and we used to hang out every, every Sunday in our pool. So it was, a lot of things came out of that. I'm not gonna talk about it too much, but um, so I studied screenwriting for a year. So in other words, to be able to write this and make, make a good screenplay out of it. I didn't want to disrespect that, that discipline, you know, by just trying to think I can write a screenplay. So I, I studied for a year and I had to do that, you know, on tour and with emails and do all that kind of stuff. But anyway, things like that. I just, again, coming back to the fact that I love being creative. So it doesn't have to be just music. It's, it could be writing, making videos, you know, whatever. I just, I love being creative, so... Thanks for listening to the Ivy Arts and Culture podcast. For more information about Ivy and our over 400 cultural programs nationwide, visit culture.ivy.com.